Welcome to My Favorite Mystic, a podcast about the weird and wonderful world of mysticism. I'm your host, AJ Langley, and today I'm joined by Jane Shaw. She is Professor of the History of Religion and Principal of Harris Manchester College at the University of Oxford. Jane, thank you so much for being here today. Pleasure. Great to be here. So today you're going to speak to us about Evelyn Underhill. I am, yes. But before we get started on her, I'd like to hear a little bit more about you. Could you speak a little bit about your research interests and how you came to the study of mysticism? Of course, yes. I used to write about the Enlightenment, and I wrote a book about miracles in the Enlightenment. And then I discovered a millenarian community in Bedford in England that was prominent in the 1920s and 30s, which somewhat took over my life because no other academic had ever been allowed in. And so they had this extraordinary archive, I mean, really extraordinary with, you know, millions of pieces of paper, essentially, and diaries and home movies about their community life in the 20s and 30s. So I became a historian of the early 20th century, and I wrote a book about them. They had a female Messiah figure at the helm called she got renamed Octavia. She was a vicar's widow. So I wrote a book called Octavia, Daughter of God, A Female Messiah and Her Followers. And when I was doing that, I began to get interested in the ways in which the early 20th century really marked a period when people were dissatisfied with institutional religion and questing after an authentic spirituality. And some of the women and men in the Panacea Society, as it was called in Bedford, were reading about mysticism. And so I began to get interested in why, and I discovered there was this real revival of interest in mysticism in the early 20th century. And so now I'm writing a book about that. And what was it about this particular group that really sparked your interest? I suppose what really interested me from the community is how did people hold multiple affiliations, actually, multiple religious affiliations, and how did they belong to some institutional forms of religion without necessarily believing what they were supposed to. I discovered lots of people like that. But also, how did they sometimes sit lightly to the institution as well? And so, you know, this is a period when numerous alternative spiritualities have begun to emerge in the late 19th and early 20th century, many of them led by women, and many of them expanding gender equality, whether it's theosophy or indeed spiritualism or Christian science or indeed homegrown ones like the Panacea Society, although they were conservative in other regards, despite the prominence of women. So I got interested in how people were questing after a spiritual life, even if they were on the margins of or outside any form of institutional religion. And so mysticism clearly plays into that hugely. And I began to read around and I discovered in 1899, a man called W.R. Ing gave the Bampton Lectures at Oxford and published them. And they were really successful. Like they sold out, they sold like hot cakes. And then of course, about three years later, William James gave the Gifford Lectures in Scotland on varieties of religious experience, very important book. In 1911, Evelyn Underhill produced this huge book on mysticism, extremely important, never out of print since. And so, and there were a number of other key people, including a Roman Catholic called Baron von Hugel, who was very influential upon Underhill later. And then lots of other people who, you know, rather lost in the mists of time, who were extremely interested or wanted to jump on the bandwagon, one or the other or both. There was a massive sort of outpouring of books on mysticism for the next, really the next couple of decades or so. So the 1910s and 1920s, going into the 1930s, there was this massive revival of interest in mysticism and I think in mysticism. So it's also the period when a lot of prayer groups begin to form, 
Evelyn Underhill herself ran one, but also there's a huge rise of interest in retreats, especially after World War I, and lots of dioceses begin to create their own retreat houses. And in fact, it's thought to be a good thing to send traumatized soldiers on retreat. And all of that, of course, relates to having a disciplined prayer life, which is, in the Christian tradition, how you might have union with God. With the abundance of mystical thinkers and writers during this period, what was it that made Evelyn Underhill stand out for you? What made her your favorite mystic? Because she's lovely and kind and wise and has a great sense of humor. All things that we love in a person and a mystic. Absolutely. And she is often regarded as, you know, the sort of great, wonderful Anglican. Well, in fact, it's only in the last 20 years of her life that she is that. Before that, she was one of these people on the quest for authentic spirituality. She was a seeker, if you like. She had some kind of religious experience in youngish adulthood. And she is searching about what to do about that. She thinks about becoming a Roman Catholic, but she's clearly a modernist. And of course, the modernists get into trouble with the Pope. So she decides to step back from that. And also she's about to get married and her husband is not very keen on her being a Roman Catholic. So during that period when she is researching and writing mysticism and some other smaller books too, basically the kind of 1910s, she is really very much involved in the study of mysticism but outside institutional religion, which makes her really interesting to me. And in fact, before that, earlier than that, she is for a short while a part of the occult group, the Order of the Golden Dawn, although she doesn't remain very interested in that for very long. But for me, she is emblematic of the period in being someone on the quest for an authentic spiritual life. And then around 1921, she becomes sort of decidedly Anglican. And after that, she is very lauded as a retreat leader, which in itself has the most wonderful, delicious irony about it, because, I mean, she's the only retreat leader from that period, probably anyone in the know remembers But the Anglo-Catholic Retreat Association said only priests could lead retreats, which, of course, is men in those days. So it's great that she was perhaps the most famous retreat leader, very important spiritual director and gives this fantastic advice. And at some point I will read you from one or two of her letters because the letters are wonderful. Well, I'm certainly looking forward to that. But before we get too much into her text, let's round out her biography a little bit. Can you tell us her dates and give us a little bit more information on her life? Yes, her dates, 1875 to 1941. So she comes from quite a wealthy family, upper middle class, and she has a sort of pretty patchy education, goes to a girls' school for a bit, I think does a little bit of study at King's London, but does not get a degree. So she's largely self-taught. She goes travelling a lot with her parents. She is absolutely delighted and thrilled by Italy when she finally goes there. And that's part of the religious awakening, is going to Italy. Loves the churches, loves the art, loves the sense of spirituality there. She marries a childhood sweetheart who is a lawyer, and they both love sailing. And she's very good friends with the novelist May Sinclair because of sailing as well. She's on this quest, this spiritual quest, and she has a religious experience of some kind. She thinks about becoming a Roman Catholic, but doesn't. So she's on the margins of institutional religion in the 1910s. 1921, thereabouts, she becomes an Anglican decidedly for the rest of her life. She dies in 1941. So for those last 20 years of her life, she is a good, respectable Anglican. But she describes herself always as a freelancer, which is a term I love. You know, she says, I can do all kinds of things because I'm a freelancer. I mean, she's on lots of committees, of course, but, you know, she's actually... Part of the institution and yet sits loosely to it in some ways. 
So she's an early example of our current gig economy. Exactly. She's, a, she's an early 20th century example of the gig economy, precisely. And she has this very comfortable, materially comfortable life. They live in Holland Park. But there's a problem with that, too, in that she sees her parents every day. And her husband, I think, you know, needs her to be the lawyer's wife. And people do write about the ways in which, you know, she could sort of turn on a dime, as it were, from giving spiritual direction to seeing her husband walk in and sort of saying, hello, darling, for dinner tonight, there will be. So she does slightly live a dual life. And if you read her spiritual journal, which has been published, you can get a little bit of a sense of that. She's hugely influential still, I think, to some degree, but very much in her day. And an enormously influential spiritual director and an enormously influential writer, actually. I mean, the number of people who read her, and to some extent sent W.R. Ng, the guy who wrote the book in, which kicked off the revival of interest in mysticism in 1899. But a lot of people read Underhill. For example, T.S. Eliot records reading Underhill's book, Mysticism, when he was a graduate student at Harvard and, and made very keen notes on it. And of course, when you read his poetry, you can see the huge influence of mysticism on him. But lots of other people, too. I want to come back to her work as a spiritual director, but before we do, could you speak a little bit more about her own spiritual journey and how she constructed her ideas of worship? Her focus is on adoration of God. At one point she says in the letters, you know, the Trinity is complex, so, you know, you have to sort of pick one of them, God, Jesus, or Holy Spirit. And I think she's not naturally a Jesus person. She makes herself a Jesus person. She's a God person, actually, if that makes sense. And she has a very serious, devout life. She has a number of spiritual directors herself, first Baron von Hugel, later on quite a strict spiritual director called Reginald Somerset Ward, and then a bishop called Walter Freer. Also, the scholarly life is important to her, and I don't want to leave that out. I mean, here is this largely self-taught person who produces, you know, one of the most important texts on mysticism in the century, but also contributes to the revival of interest in mysticism in other ways. So for those of you who are medievalists, she contributes in an enormously important way to getting either scholarly or accessible texts. For example, she edits The Cloud of Unknowing herself and writes quite a lot of introductions to different versions of texts, but also directs other women. You know, a lot of women are involved in the production of scholarly and accessible texts in this period of the medieval mystics, as you probably know. For example, one called Grace Warwick produces a modern version of Revelations of Divine Love. But it's only because of that revival of interest in mysticism that people now have the knowledge. So do you know the story of the discovery of Marjorie Kemp in a ping pong cupboard? Yes, I do, but my listeners may not. Right. So this guy who's a colonel, I think, in a big house in somewhere in England, discovers the Marjorie Kemp manuscript. And it's like, oh, it's getting in the way of me finding the ping pong bats. You know, I should burn this. But fortunately, someone saves it. And it's, there's no, it might be important. And I think, I'm pretty sure it's Evelyn Underhill who says you should get Hope Emily Allen to take a look at it. She'll know about it. So there's a way in which she's a connector. She knows a lot of different people. And she is the book editor for The Spectator a long time. So she encourages people by getting them to write reviews or she writes reviews of their books to encourage them. So she's an encourager as well, as you can tell from the tone of her letters. But the mystical life is a very serious one for her, and it's something that anyone can do. She writes a book in 1914 called Practical Mysticism and says, anyone can learn this as long as you put the time in. You know, it's kind of like learning the law or how to play a musical instrument. So if I had to do a strap line for Evelyn Andy, it would be anyone can be a mystic if you put the time in. On the topic of the achievability of mysticism, let's talk about her book, Practical Mysticism. 
who did she write this book for and what kind of guidance does she give them? You know, if you read it now, you think it's a bit old fashioned. And that is one critique sometimes people make of Evelyn Underhill, that she's very much in her upper middle class milieu, shall I say. And she's speaking to those people, I think, to be honest, you know, the people she meets in the drawing room when her lawyer husband brings them home. But it's about saying, what are the steps you need to take? And it's encouraging that you can and what the outcome will be. She wrote an essay called What is Mysticism? It's the last piece of writing about mysticism that she produces. It's in 1936, five years before she died. And there she talks about what makes Christian mysticism specific. And it's very much about the fact that it's about the fruits. It's not about the experience. You know, Plotinus might end it with the experience of union with the absolute. For her, it's about then what you go out into the world to do, as it would be for many Christian mystics. But she also, in that essay, likens the mystic way and being a mystic to being an artist and how hard it is. So she says, if you're an artist or indeed a scientist or an explorer or a philanthropist, those are the things she says, you have to root out everything that conflicts with your vocation and impedes your progress. All forms of self-occupation, pride, ambition, love of comfort, all competing interests, pleasures and affections. And such self-conquest is the very essence of the mystic's work, she says. You need a purity of heart that is even greater and more searching. The reward of this courage and single-mindedness, this stern training in detachment, is always a great increase in knowledge and understanding. The power of the artist grows with his concentration. He's able to perceive and convey beauty in a way he did not do before. So too the purified soul of the mystic in proportion to his self-abandonment, sees all the truths of religion flowing with new beauty, reality, and life. For the fullness and creative quality of the life to which he is called is only developed in him when he passes, and usually by way of great suffering, beyond this to a further stage, a state in which he's so sunk in and united to that divine life and divine beauty that he seems to live in and with its very life, with the freedom, ease, and simplicity of a fish at home in the sea. Lots of analogies there with artists and fish. It's not an easy life, but when you do it, you just everything is fresh, bright, new. There seems to be almost a contradiction here between her advice that one needs to get rid of all of their obstacles while she's both a spiritual director and an influential writer, and yet she's also living the life of an upper-middle-class wife with all the responsibilities that that entails. How does she reconcile these ideas? I think a whole life is about balancing those two and telling other people that you can do it, actually. So that you can do that. And I think it's about perfecting the art of sitting still in the morning in your little study or wherever she meditated and prayed and then thinking, oh, I've got lunch with my father now, right? So I think that's in a way why the letters are so down to earth because her whole life is about integrating the mystic life with the domestic and the everyday and the ordinary and sitting on a committee at church house or editing a text or writing a book review or going to the concert or sailing. So let's get into her work as a spiritual director now and discuss some of her letters. What were people writing to her for advice about and what kind of advice does she end up giving them? Yes, I recommend the letters to everybody and there are two editions. The first edition of the letters came out just after she died in the mid-1940s, 1943 in fact, edited by the writer Charles Williams. And then there's a much more up-to-date, more complete edition of the letters edited by Carol Poston, but that's quite expensive. I think it's about $75. Whereas you can get the little Charles Williams edition, which is called The Letters of Underhill, secondhand for about £6, and it fits into your pocket. Okay, 
I should say up front that I keep coming back to these letters. I reread them every Lent because they are charming, smart, and all of those things. So this is to one of her advisees, spiritual advisees, in 1936. As to your Lent, no physical hardships beyond what normal life provides, but take each of these as serenely and gratefully as you can and make of them your humble offering to God. Don't reduce sleep. Don't get up in the cold. Practice more diligently the art of turning to God with some glance or phrase of love and trust at all spare moments of the day. Be especially kind and patient with those who irritate you and make of this effort an offering to God. Instead of wasting energy and being disgusted with yourself, accept your own failures and just say to God, well, in spite of all I may say or fancy, this is what I'm really like, so please help my weakness. This, not self-disgust, is the real and fruitful humility. That's great. I love that. I'm glad you do. There's a kind of kindness about that. And she seems very anti-asceticism. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's not that she doesn't think you have to have a rigorous life. You do. But it's very ordinary. And her images are very homely and domestic. So, for example, she said, the spiritual life is not about growing spring bulbs. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but in England, there's this tradition that you plant some hyacinths or something in a bowl you put them in the dark in your airing cupboard or something over the winter, and then you pull them out, and you keep looking at them, though, making sure they're okay. She said the spiritual life is not that. Don't keep pulling the bulbs out of the cupboard to poke at it. Let it be in some ways, you know. But she's also clear it's not full of high points. But it seems like her advice is easy to follow and generally applicable. But she's a very shrewd observer of character, and I'm going to read you another letter to a different spiritual advisee now, who she has obviously completely got the measure of. This is summer 1937, and it's obviously someone who's written to say what place does mortification have in the spiritual life. As to deliberate mortifications, I take it you do feel satisfied that you accept fully those God sends. That being so, you might perhaps do one or two little things as acts of love and also as discipline. I suggest by preference the mortification of the tongue as being very tiresome and quite harmless to the health. Careful guard on all amusing criticism of others, on all complaints, however casual and trivial, deliberately refraining sometimes, not always, from saying the entertaining thing. This does not mean you are to be dull or correct, but to ration this side of your life. I doubt whether things like sitting on the least comfortable chair affect you enough to be worth bothering about. But I'm sure custody of the tongue, on the line suggested, could give you quite a bit of trouble and be a salutary bit of discipline, a sort of verbal hair shirt. I think God does provide quite a reasonable amount of material for self-denial in your life. This extra bit is for love. Can you imagine being on the receiving end of that? I mean, we know exactly what that poor person is like. <laughs> it's very shrewd advice, right? It's amazing. Like, how can I, you know, punish myself for God? It's like, well, basically you talking is punishing everyone else. So stop doing that. <laughs> yeah. They're full of gems of all kinds like that. And I recommend them. And they're funny too. I mean, you know, she relates incidents all the time to others. She talks about, you know, arriving at a cathedral once to give a retreat and she discovered there was a midday Eucharist and no one had told her, but she was in the bar. So she gets out with dripping wet hair and then 
she discovered that she didn't need to be there at all and that none of the people who are going on to be on retreat with her are there. So she has a cold and lonely ham sandwich and then goes off to take the retreat. So, you know, it's, she has a sort of humorous way of looking at things and she loves cats as well. She's a cat lady. Just one more reason to like her. Is her advice always so specifically tailored or are there examples of her giving more general advice as well? Usually when people write to her, she says, oh, well, you might want to do some reading. And she might say, read Julian of Norwich or read Augustine or read someone more recent. And she sort of tailor makes the reading list for them. And then they usually start a spiritual direction relationship, really, which is, oh, I'm having a bit of difficulty with praying at the moment or how many times do I need to go to the Eucharist or we don't have the letters they wrote to her. We just have her letters back. So we have to guess what the questions are. But, you know, how do I have a holy Lent? And so then she responds, and usually in a very down-to-earth, practical way, about don't overdo it. One, another person who's obviously overdoing it, uh, she says, you know, I think you need to go to bed with a novel and some hot milk. So, you know, there's that. It's a sort of about don't overdo it, but when you're doing it, be disciplined and be still and focused and pray and meditate on this piece of scripture or read this book and it'll make sense, some sense to you. So it, it's a spirituality that's quite readery. Do you know what I mean? It's not just praying. It's also there's quite a lot of reading involved. How does she bridge this gap between being a spiritual director and becoming known as a devout Anglican? Does she give advice towards participating more actively in the institutional church? Evelyn Underhill is very interesting because she is not a church girl for a long time. And then she does become fully, you know, embraces Anglicanism and starts going to church very regularly and believes you have to do that. And the big book she writes at the end of her life, 1936, is called Worship. So she makes that journey and she writes to a couple of spiritual directees who are clearly not very keen on church. Look, I made that mistake when I was young. I didn't go to church. I didn't think I needed it. But actually, everyone needs to go every now and then. And she says, you know, don't go obsessively, but obviously... She doesn't believe in going obsessively at all. And clearly she is, until the end of her life, a bit more comfortable praying in her study, I think, than she is going to church. But nevertheless, she sees its importance in terms of community and ritual and all of those things. Very telling that she goes from writing a book about mysticism when she is not attached to any institutional religion at all in 1911 to writing a book about worship when she's sort of fully embraces Anglicanism. You know, looking back on her life, from the end of her life, you think, oh, you know, good Anglican contributes to many causes. The one thing I would disagree with her on is she was against the ordination of women. I think she writes one essay only on it, stating that. I think that's because she's Anglo-Catholic. She's high church. But she did go and speak. So the great campaign of the ordination of women in that period was a woman called Maud Royden, who ran a alternative sort of worshipping community. I mean, Maud Royden is a good Anglican, but she runs a very interesting alternative worshipping community called the Guildhouse in the 1920s with a, an Anglican priest called Percy Dimmer. And Evelyn Underhill went and spoke there. She went and spoke about Francis of Assisi, if I remember rightly. So she's opposed to the idea of women priests, but I think it's because she's an Anglo-Catholic. I think everyone would have to do it at the same time, which is sometimes an Anglo-Catholic position. Unfortunately, we are coming towards the end of our time. But before we do, is there anything else that you would like to say about the life, works and legacy of Evelyn Underhill? I think the last thing I want to say about Evelyn Underhill is that 2021 is the 100th anniversary 
of her coming to lecture at my college when it was still Manchester College before it became Harris Manchester College. She gave the Upton lectures and in doing so, she was the first woman ever to lecture in theology at Oxford. So we were rather proud of that. And we were planning a really fun 100th anniversary event, which may or may not take place in 2021. We don't know. I think it's probably the kind of thing we'd love to do in person. So we may end up doing it in the autumn rather than earlier. And in fact, I think she lectured in the academic year 21 to 22. So that would be fine. But I've just been uh, working on a historic exhibition, a permanent exhibition of some of the women who both made Manchester College in the late 19th and early 20th century when it moved to Oxford from Manchester, well, from London. Before that, it was in Manchester. The women who made a Harris Manchester College when it became Harris Manchester College 25 years ago. And um, I've included Evelyn Underhill in that, you know, I just thought, why not? I mean, she came and gave the Upton lectures and she was the, yeah, she was the first woman to lecture in theology at Oxford. So, hey, let's claim her. And what a wonderful person to be able to claim. Jane, thank you so much for being here today. What would you recommend people read to learn more about Evelyn Underhill and where can they find more of your work? Ah, well, I would recommend they read the letters and you can buy a secondhand edition of the letters edited by Charles Williams in 1943 very cheaply on A Books or similar. It's not a scholarly edition. There is a later scholarly edition, but that's rather more expensive. I'm writing a book about mysticism in the early 20th centuries, about all the people who get engaged in this revival of interest in and revival of mysticism. Texts they produce, the practices they have, the prayer groups, the retreat groups, all of that stuff. But it's not published yet because it's not finished yet. (laughs) But in due course, I hope it will be uh, because I've been working on this for quite a long time. I've written a number of articles about this. There's one in the Journal of Anglican Studies. And there might be other pieces along the way. I wrote a blog for the Solitude Project at Queen Mary that Barbara Taylor is running. And there's a bit about Evelyn Underhill going on retreat there, which people might want to read. But otherwise, please look out for the book when it eventually comes out. Jane, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing Evelyn Underhill's wit and wisdom. It has been an absolute joy. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. You can find more from Jane on Evelyn Underhill in her book, Pioneers of Modern Spirituality, The Neglected Anglican Innovators of a Spiritual but Not Religious Age, the link for which is in the show notes. You can follow us on Twitter at MyFaveMystic, and of course, join me next time when I speak to Lauren Cole about Hildegard von Bingen.